It's the Underpowered Hour on this week's show, saying goodbye to Prince Philip. Favorite Land Rover advertisement, a top tool tip, and everyone's favorite segment, Famous Land Rover Owner of the Week. And now, here's the show. Welcome to the Underpowered Hour. I'm Stephen Barris, mild-mannered television executive by day and Land Rover collector by night. You can find out more about my cars and what we're working on at thebarriscollection.com or check us out on Instagram at the Barris Collection. I'm joined, as always, by my good friend, Ike Goss. Thanks to everyone joining us today. I'm the bias ply to Stephen's radio, the unsynchronized crash box of podcasting, Ike Goss. I own and operate Pangolin 4x4 in Springfield, Oregon, where we live and breathe Land Rovers. Check us out online, Facebook, and Instagram at Pangolin 4x4. All right, Stephen, let's get started. All right, Ike. So this week we are greatly saddened by the passing of Prince Philip, a huge fan of the Land Rover brand, um, so much so uh, that he has designed his own uh, funeral Land Rover, his own uh, Land Rover uh, hearse. Apparently, it's a modified uh, gun bus, a gun tractor that uh, he had modified years ago uh, to use as a sort of, a, I guess, an estate tour car or something. And that will be uh, the car that uh, brings him to his uh, his final rest, which is, I, I think, a fitting end for someone who is as dedicated to uh, the brand uh, as as he was. And I think. Uh, you know, both you and I likely uh, to find our end in a Land Rover as well, but but possibly not being dead before getting in that Land Rover. Uh, but maybe maybe uh, after getting out of it, who knows? Or underneath it. Uh, at any rate, um, yeah, I was uh, I felt kind of guilty about this uh, in our last podcast. We mentioned that he had uh, flipped his Land Rover, and uh, we were kind of making light of that. And then, of course, a week later, he. Uh, uh, meets his untimely demise at age 99. Um, who could have foreseen it? But uh, yep. at, at the uh, at the same time, he was definitely a supporter of the mark, and uh, so many photographs exist of him driving uh, Land Rovers and using and enjoying Land Rovers. So we were uh, sorry to hear of his passing. Uh, this. Um, this 130 that they're using as the uh, funeral car is is kind of an interesting vehicle. Have you seen the photos of that car? Yeah, I have. It's uh, it is really interesting. It, it's sort of a um, you know sort of a like you said a modified uh, sort of bus kind of touring. Uh, sort of car and uh, yeah, it looks like it 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 would seat normally. Uh, sort of looks a little bit like an ambulance body. Um, I think right. Yeah, I would say it, it is reminiscent of an ambulance body, but it is it is green instead of white, and uh, it's pretty yeah. uh, basic and unadorned. It's not like a, a flashy vehicle like you would expect, maybe of a hearse for uh, you know a foreign dignitary or or someone of the royal family. You would expect maybe like a, a, a Range Rover or or you know some sort of Cadillac Escalade for some sort of head of state. Um, but this is this is a utility vehicle, no doubt, and uh, it looks it, it definitely has some uh, some military elements to it. It's the the deep bronze green color, and it's kind of a, a it definitely looks like a military vehicle, which might harken back to his military service. 
Yeah, of course, because he, uh, you know, obviously very uh, active member of the uh, of the military, the Royal Navy, I believe. And uh, and yeah, I think, you know, over the years, you certainly saw plenty of uh, opportunities for him to go out and uh, be it uh, with uh, troops deployed or even when, uh, you know, even when the uh, you know, uh, William and Harry were uh, in the military uh, visits uh, to those two, uh, you know, obviously done in Land Rovers because of the uh, association with the British military. So really a very cool, uh, you know, a, a very cool opportunity to uh, design one's own uh, funeral car. And apparently that wasn't a uh, that wasn't a decision that the, the royal family made after his passing. That was something that uh, he wanted uh, from the uh, outset that uh, he said uh, uh, I would like, uh, you know, this this is the car I would like to, uh, you know, carry my uh, casket, uh, and uh, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. It, it uh, gets me thinking about uh, what Land Rover I would like to uh, carry my uh, casket. Uh, if only we were all given the opportunity to design a Land Rover to do such a thing. I think, Ike, again, it comes back to uh, the perfect opportunity to buy the Judge Dread uh, 101. I, I can't think of a more fitting way uh, to send you into the hereafter, but in the Judge Dread 101. Well, uh, should I pass before you, uh, I will insist that you purchase and arrange that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, you know, I think the space on the inside of those Judge Red One Hundred One Four Control Landovers is is fairly limited. Maybe you'll have to just drag the casket behind the vehicle, or maybe just—I mean, maybe we could fold you to get you inside or something. I don't know. At any rate, we'll figure it out. That's a that's a an issue for another time. But uh, well, well, you know. But con- again, conversely, yeah. we have to know what is your ideal Land Rover funerary car. It, wow, that's a great question. It's a mm. it's a Camel Trophy Freelander, isn't it? Oh, Camel Trophy Freelander. Well, you know, there is one for sale. Here's the the honest truth of that, Ike. I think it's a toss-up between a Camel Trophy Freelander and the Gerard Depardieu. <laughs> the Gerard Depardieu uh, Paris Dakar 110. And I would be honored. I would be honored. Uh, to be carried to my final rest in the Gerard Depardieu Dakar uh, 110. I think that would be fitting. Well, my understanding is that uh, Land Rover is uh, going to be um, participating in the Paris Dakar rally uh, in a more substantial role. I think initially in a support role, and uh, I think they've had some, you know, privateers do bowlers and these sorts of things. But yeah, but maybe you could have a a Stephen Barris, Paris Dakar defender. I think it's the perfect sponsorship opportunity for the underpowered hour. We could each get our faces painted on the side <laughs> of a 110 and uh, and compete in the Paris uh, Dakar. I don't think uh, there's really uh, no better advertising opportunity for a uh, independent podcast about Land Rovers than to compete in uh, an extraordinarily expensive, uh, you know, desert uh, racing series. It's it's just a natural fit. I think I think campaigning a race car, an international um, 
you know, endurance race car is, is the next logical step in this podcast. Yeah, it, it totally makes, it totally makes sense. And speaking of advertising as, uh, you know, we build, uh, our, uh, mega podcast brand Land Rover, of course, is famous for all the way back to the series one, having some very clever advertising. We've of course talked about even the, you know, the ownership manual for the original series one, having a very tongue in cheek, uh, approach to to its uh, illustrations and uh, and how it has you look at things, and I thought like, I I wanted just to know what is your favorite Land Rover advert over the years, and and why why is it your favorite? You know I, I you know there's a lot there's a lot of really interesting Land Rover advertisements over the years, and like you say, some of them are very clever, uh, both graphically and uh, you know textually. Um, I think one of my favorites is actually an early video advertisement for the Series 1. And uh, the Land Rover is is actually narrating to a horse. So, you know, at the time, the Land Rover was like kind of a farmer's vehicle, a, a yeah. utility vehicle. And there weren't, there weren't tons of cars in Britain at this time. Uh, and a lot of farms and farmers still used horses. So the advertisement is the Land Rover talking to a horse. So the Land Rover is narrating the ad and it's showing the Land Rover doing a lot of the things that a horse would do on a, a farm of the period. And the tagline of the advertisement is anything you can do, I can do better. And so <laughs> then a horse, then a horse. So it, it, sh yeah. it shows the uh, a horse pulling a cart full of hay. And then it shows uh, Land Rover doing the same job, only quicker and more efficiently and so forth. But uh, I like that one just because it really anchors uh, the advertisement in the period and kind of tells you what's happening in post-war Britain. You know, uh, there's a lot of, I guess, poverty, you would say, in post-war Britain and rationing is still happening. And uh, here's a time when uh, England is coming out of this period and uh, they're mechanizing farms and farming. The Ferguson tractor system is happening. You know, it's really revolutionizing small farms and uh, the Land Rover is part of that transition. And so I really enjoy it. Uh, a lot of really great, uh, uh, you know, it's kind of it, the soundtrack is pretty wonderful, too. It's like a. Mm -hmm. A, a lot of uh, happy horns, and uh, it, it's great. It's great. Look it up. Anything you can do, I can do better. So the, I, I would say that's one of my favorites, at least one that's sticking in my mind at the moment. I think anything with the old timey uh, British narrator guy, sort of, uh, you know, the "so you want to buy a Land Rover" kind of guy. I think any of any of that is uh, that's a beautiful time for advertising. Uh, I uh, I look very fondly uh, uh, back at that time. I personally uh, am a huge fan of the print advertising of the mid '90s. So um, that's of course the uh, you know famous uh, you know Defender ads. Uh, you know a Defender parked in a you know in a field full of alligators, saying you know like. 
there's you know there's more than one reason life expectancy has gone up and things like cheeky things like that and those existed right through to the end of the defender i think it was in something like the mid uh the mid 2010s where they had the uh defender the uh rated highest in meteor crash tests which <laughs> i think was kind of is kind of funny like uh you know like they do uh they do a lot of of that sort of stuff my favorite one though by far is a uh is a range Rover classic ad and actually it's a giant uh a poster i have hanging in the uh roof of my shop like a two uh, story and a half tall uh poster that um that says uh simply a range rover driving through a lake uh, water up to about the uh, bumper and uh it says uh we break for fit or we'll break for fish Oh. Which is just such a stupid like <laughs> line. Like it doesn't even. You kind of read it, and people come in and they look at it and they read it and they're like, "What is? Oh, like we'll break for I. Oh, I get. I guess. And it's like it doesn't really make a ton of sense. It's not really all that funny. It's just sort of absurd. It's like a silly. It's like a silly thing. And I. I don't know. For some reason, every time I look at it, it kind of makes me smile. Um, Another one, of course, we were talking about video, uh, you know, of uh, of uh, film reels, and I'm sure every Land Rover owner on the planet is familiar with the famous, the famous uh, Land Rover Defender winching up the dam. Oh yes, uh, video. yes. The, the I'm late for work, and so I'm going to winch myself up this giant dam. Yes, reenacted famously by Top Gear, I believe. Yeah, absolutely it was. And uh, it was, yeah, it was, uh, it was, I don't remember exactly. I know Richard Hammond did the driving, um, and I don't remember if they recreated it the same way that they did the original, uh, the original uh, commercial, of course, the original commercial, the Land Rover's winch wasn't actually doing the pulling up the, uh, you know, up the side of the, uh, um, you know, up the side of the dam. That's not something that uh, that they could do at the time. And I think Top Gear did the the thing where, uh, similar, I think, to how they did it originally, they put a motor in a cradle uh, in the back of the truck. Oh, And wow. that actually drove the winch on the truck. Um, but, of course, if a motor gets to be too steep of an angle, it's going to cut out. It can only work up to a certain angle. And so it's actually in this weird little swinging cradle that allows the motor to balance uh, and continue to run what is a, a much, much, much more industrial winch than a Land Rover would be fitted with normally. The Land Rover winch is not uh, designed to take your car and just pick it straight up in the air, which is essentially all it's doing going up that dam. Well, that dam is uh, also like uh, hundreds of feet high, and uh, you know most winches don't carry that much cable. If I remember correctly, it's like a worn electric winch on the bumper of that Defender in the advertisement. And the worn, the famous worn red W is kind of blacked out, you know, so it's made to look like just a generic winch. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, if memory serves me, I, I, gosh, I can't remember now, but I think in the Top Gear version, they have a winch anchored to the dam at the top, maybe, and pull the Land Rover up. You know, I don't remember exactly, um, but yeah, they had they had worked something out so that uh, so that they could get away with doing it the way because doing it actually practically having the vehicle kind of uh, you know uh, well first of all how would that winch cable get up there in the first place like did you leave a winch cable <laughs> hanging down that dam just in case you were you could the funny thing is is although I don't know how you would actually manage the rope you could do that with a Caspian winch you actually could. 
attached to it and like a ski chairlift just ride up that rope because you only actually need the couple of feet of rope that is binding against the drum to use a cast and winch so i suppose if you if you practically needed to uh you know uh winch yourself up a dam and someone had conveniently provided a rope for you to do such uh, a thing with you you could conceivably do it uh that way i don't know that I would recommend that, but yeah, if memory serves me like in the beginning of the advertisement, um, the guy is like traveling along a road and then, uh, he, he just kind of goes down into this river. Um, Mm -hmm. and then he, he drives up the river and he reaches the dam and he, he reaches over and on his passenger seat, if I remember correctly, is a grappling hook gun. That's right. He has a grappling hook gun. That's right, the grappling hook gun. I forgot about the grappling hook gun, of course. So the grappling hook gun is attached somehow to the winch, you know, uh, and then the winch pulls the Land Rover up the dam. And then he gets to the top of the dam, and then he he just, like, he has his turn signals on, if I remember, and then he he just, like, because he signals that he's going to turn left (laughs) on top of the dam. Well, you could get a ticket, I think, if you don't. If you don't do that. And then he just he just drives away. I don't think he unhooks his winch cable or anything. He just puts his turn signal I mean, on. it's, it's going to be a few hundred feet before he realizes he hasn't done that because he's just driven up a 400-foot dam. So, you know, he's got, some, he's got some time. I think the key is the grappling hook gun, you know, to that yeah, you're situation. Right. You're right. The grappling hook gun is really a – I had forgotten about that, but you're right. The grappling hook gun might be the best part of the entire thing. That is uh, – and it just goes to show you that, you know, every good Land Rover owner uh, should have a grappling hook gun on standby <laughs> just in case. That's should... just in case you encounter a dam or or something of the of the like. Have to fight some crime. Like I feel like that's a Batman accessory, but that brings up a good segue to our fun tools for your Land Rover. And, uh, That's right. A top tool, tool top, top tool tip. A tip, tip, tip to, of the top tools. A tip tool top, tip. A top tool tip, top t- tip tool. Yes. So uh, I think that you had one that you wanted to talk about. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because um, it's one of those things where I was talking to somebody the other day, and it's the difference between what we call things in Canada and what people call things in uh, the United States. And in Canada, we have this tool called a mousing tool. And what a mousing tool does is uh, it will take uh, a piece of uh, safety wire. Uh, You you know, this is used inside of your differential sometimes. It's used uh, certainly all over aircraft and things like that. But anything where you need bolts to stay exactly where you put them um, and uh, not back themselves out, but you, uh, for whatever reason, can't use some other kind of way of preventing that. You're not going to key it. You're not going to use a cottard pin. You're not going to something. And especially in cases where uh, things are being inspected all the time and you maybe want to make a, a chain of things where you want to you want to wire them all together, um, there's a particular way to twist that wire around each other, not just like a, a zip tie or a, or a twist tie you'd put around a bag of potato chips or something. Uh, there is a specific tool for that. Uh, we call them mousing pliers here in the United States. They're called safety wire pliers sometimes. And it's essentially a pair of vice grips. A much better name, I might add. Yeah, safety wire pliers makes way more sense. Mousing, I don't know what mousing is, but I suppose mousing a uh, shackle closed or mousing a uh, 
you know, a bolt or something is what we say in, in Canada. So maybe that's a rigging term. But uh, um, anyway, so you have your safety wire pliers, you uh, run the piece of safety wire through or around or under or in or whatever the, the thing that you need to, and you end up with two pieces running parallel out the end. Now, normally, you just take your two hands and you'd kind of zip those things back and forth over top of each other and kind of make a little twisty braid. Well, what a what a pair of safety wire pliers does, like a pair of vice grips, allows you to clip to that uh, wire um, and hold it between the jaws, which are a little bit pointed, and then welded to one side of the handle in the inside and the gap between the handles um, is essentially a spring-loaded um, a spring-loaded sort of uh, a twisted shaft that has, you know, a little keyway that allows you to, when pulled against the force of the string, spins uh, on exactly the center axis of the pliers the two pieces of wire together to form a super neat and, if you pull it enough, very tight, uh, so tight that you can break the safety wire, but you you pull it taut and you get right, you know, snugged right up against whatever your safety wiring and you get a beautiful little twist. And then they even have a little a little shear uh, built into the jaws so that you can clip it off at a, a nice little uh, end and you can have these beautifully moused uh, or beautifully safety wired um, uh, bolts or, or what have you. So if, for instance, you're inside of a, you know, differential is a good uh, point. You're going to have all those bolts uh, bolted in there. Uh, some people will pin them. You can stake them. You can do all kinds of different things. But a great way to do that is to mouse them all together, safety wire them all together. And having a pair of safety wire pliers or mousing pliers uh, makes that job uh, not just much easier, but it looks significantly better. And I'll tell you, um, I used to do a lot of high rigging work in, uh, you know, for concerts and theater and, and what have you. And a common practice is to take a shackle, regular D shackle, and through that little hole in the end of the shackle pin, uh, that's to safety wire it. That's what that little thing is for. A lot of people think it's to put something in there and to crack the shackle open. That is one use for it, but it's actually so that you can run a piece of safety wire around the shackle and then through that uh, opening, uh, and you can safety wire it shut. So you can see if um, you know if it's something that's visible, you can look, and if that safety wire is broken or you know that something's been disturbed or that that shackle is starting to loosen or that it's flexed or something like that. And it's a really, it's a very, very common thing for doing rigging uh, in, uh, you know, a high overhead sort of thing. So, and of course, airplanes, it really all comes from airplanes. It's so. to prevent uh, professional wrestlers from falling out of the uh, rafters, right? Yeah, you do not want to tape the, you don't want to tape the safety release uh, cord uh, to someone who will flex around uh, in it and inadvertently uh, pull that safety release. Uh, yeah, that is a bad, that is a bad day for everyone. We, uh, we use these type of pliers that work quite a bit and they are super useful as long as your fasteners have a provision for the holes. And mm -hmm. uh, one of the most famous applications on a Land Rover is the the tappet set screws that hold the tappets in to the cylinder block on a two and a quarter liter Land Rover engine. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that is one very satisfying job is to, to safety wire those in place. And, and when you're safety wiring uh, fasteners, uh, typically you would want the tension of the safety wire to be on the right-hand side of the fastener, right? So that it keeps it mm -hmm. tight. Yep. And so sometimes part of the challenge of, of safety wiring a row of fasteners together is, is because sometimes they don't always line up. The holes in the fasteners don't always line up 
uh, when you have the appropriate amount of tension on them. So sometimes the trick is, is do I uh, pull it to the next fastener or do I go around the, the fastener mm -hmm. to keep it, to keep tension on that right hand side. So doing two fasteners together is usually really simple, but doing a row of fasteners can, yeah. can get a little harder. Um, but certainly it's satisfying to see those all neatly safety wired together. And uh, it's one of those uh, peculiarities of, of not just, I guess, not just Land Rovers, but mechanical things that you don't want mm -hmm. to come loose. Uh, a lot of old motorcycles have safety wire fitted to them because they vibrate and rattle so much. And also there's a good chance you would die if there was a, a failure. You know, for example, a wheel came off. It would be uh, yep. pretty, uh, pretty serious. Um, the one I want to talk about is, uh, is also for... Uh, I guess more applicable to older Land Rovers, series Land Rovers in particular. Now, this tool is uh, is to help your suspension ride quality. This tool is um, is kind of an interesting one. It used to be more common with uh, with leaf sprung cars, especially pre war cars, and you can still find these for sale. It, it resembles a modified chisel, and the mm -hmm. the point of this chisel has a small hole in it and that hole is uh runs up the handle of the chisel so the chisel is hollow and mm -hmm. then at the end of the chisel there is a, a grease fitting and so the idea is that you take a hammer and uh, you you tap this chisel in between the leaf springs once tension is removed from the leaf spring so you you jack up the vehicle so the the leaf springs would be slack and then you you pound this chisel in between the slackened leaves and then you'd attach a, a grease gun to the grease fitting and you'd push grease in between the leaf sprung leaves and uh, this is a, a really excellent way to improve the ride quality on your classic Land Rover unless they're all you know splayed with rust and, and really ballooned out but uh, kind of an interesting and handy tool uh, you can pick them up uh, online for twenty, thirty dollars, you know, on the eBay or a classified site. But uh, super useful. That is super cool. Now, what do you think, Ike, about non-serviceable uh, uh, rubber boots around suspension components and getting in there with that little grease needle? What are your thoughts on that? How do you feel about the the grease needle puncture of a rubber uh, boot uh, around a steering component? Well, obviously, any time that you put a hole in um, a piece of rubber, its lifespan is going to be diminished, especially if that piece is under tension. Um, but obviously, the lifespan of the component underneath is going to be diminished if it doesn't receive grease. So, uh, you know, ideally speaking, you would have a grease fitting on that component and uh, certainly on series Land Rovers, the genuine tie rod ends are, are really high quality tie rod ends, but famously they're not fitted with a grease fitting. So a lot of the time we drill and tap those to have a grease fitting, the little uh, steel cover plate that goes on top of the tie rod. We'll actually drill and tap that and put a grease fitting in so that we don't have to inject grease through the rubber boot. Can you think of an application where you can't do that? 
Well, you know, I mean, I think that, you know, for a lot of folks, modifying their tie rod ends to be serviceable or to be fair, replacing them with serviceable tie rod ends is in many ways, if it's a car that you're going to drive a lot, it's a it's a good thing to do. I have seen a tool that kind of looks like a weird somewhere between a spork and like a little a little levering thing where you can actually get in the tie rod boot and pry it away at the top and then shoot grease in uh, that way. Um, I've, I don't own one, but I do know uh, that they exist. I've never been super uh, a big fan of, of messing around with that little, you know, sprung piece that keeps it clipped at the top of the of the tie rod. That kind of feels like maybe a bad idea as well. Now, I have in the past had to go in through the boot itself, um, and then I use a, um, I use a weather stripping adhesive uh, behind that to seal that uh, spot closed, and if you, um, you know, uh, if you use a uh, you know, uh, I don't know something where you can almost make a little a little round plug to go uh, to go in there, and then uh, and then sealing grease around it. Um, you know, weather stripping grease around it that usually seals it back up, and it's and it's fine. But yeah, I agree. I mean, on the Defender or something that is getting uh, a ton of use in really terrible uh, you know environments, um, I've switched over to uh, to greasable uh, fittings to a higher. Um, you know, but the tie rods on the Defender are all aftermarket strengthened tie rods anyways, um, and they come with greasable fittings. And often that's the case if the steering components are going to be uh, upgraded in any way, uh, you know, uh, you're going to have greasable fittings as, as a thing that'll come with it. Um, but yeah, no, I like the idea of drilling and tapping. Um, you know, obviously in some cases, it's not something you want to do to a vehicle that is of particular collectible value. Um, you know, in those cases, I think, you know, the, the serviceable life of those tie rod ends is probably plenty for the amount of driving that you'll be doing with that car. So, um, you know, it, it's probably not heresy to simply replace them uh, every, you know, five to 10 years or something as they need to be replaced. Yeah, you can always disassemble them and grease them uh, by taking the boot off and, you know, working yeah. the, the end around and so forth. Um, but it's it's definitely hassle and way, way harder than just, uh, you know, attaching your grease gun to that why they yeah. uh, supplied the little telcommit grease gun in the Land Rover factory toolkits but didn't have grease fittings on uh, you know various components I won't I'm not really sure yeah we'll we'll never we'll never know but I do like the grease chisel that's a that's a neat uh, that is a neat idea I've always actually funny enough I've always used the grease boot needle to shoot grease in between my leaf springs. I didn't realize there was a poundable chisel. I'm definitely not getting in there as deep as I could with a poundable chisel. I'm going to get one of those. Grease chisel is also my favorite vape flavor. Oh, yeah. Mine as and, and a great indie <laughs> punk band. Their, their second album, not so great, but their first album is ground early, groundbreaking, to say the least. Early stuff is good. And speaking of musicians, uh, our famous Land Rover owner of the week this week is uh, Bob Marley. That's right. Everyone has been waiting uh, for us to get around uh, to Bob Marley, uh, I'm going to assume, because uh, famously there was a – I realized because I listened to every one of these episodes and as I've been remastering them uh, to include uh, our Patreon and some of those other things, we say famously – 
like more than anyone would say in normal speech. I don't know why that is. I don't know why it's like a thing that we feed off each other. We're constantly saying famously, and it doesn't even make sense most of the time. It isn't something that is even remotely famous. Um, but anyways, famously, speak for I yourself. Think it's, uh... Speak for yourself. <laughs> I think I think everyone is aware that Bob Marley had a Series Three One Hundred Nine Diesel Land Rover. Yes, I think so, and uh, there are so many great photos of him and uh, you know and his kids, Ziggy and the and the gang with uh, with that Land Rover. And you know, I've seen interviews with the Marley family. It's still in it's still in Jamaica, and uh, it, you know, they talk about riding around with it in it as they were kids and stuff. And it sounds like it was something that was that was deeply loved uh, in the family. Now, it's recently uh, undergone a bit of uh, restoration. Yes. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I've seen a lot of photos of of Bob with this Land Rover, and uh, you know, when you see it, it's kind of uh, rough around the edges. It's a little uh, battered, a little bruised. They're clearly enjoying uh, driving it around, but the you know the taillights are broken, and there's dents and dings and scrapes and scratches and so forth. The grill's a little uh, busted, you know, these sorts of things. But it's kind of uh, indicative of you know, island life, you know, it's just this uh, yeah. sort of runabout that's that's fun, you know, um, and they did restore it. And, and maybe they weren't as sympathetic to that original use as I w- maybe would have liked to have seen uh, during the process of the restoration. They replaced much of the vehicle. Um, I think a lot of the body panels were replaced. Maybe the chassis, uh, you know, a significant portion of the car was replaced and uh, it does not look or appear as the same as it does in the photos with Bob originally. Right. And I think, you know, we talked about this last uh, week with the uh, JUE uh, car and and of course, you know, famously a bunch of cars, uh, you know, has sort of been restored in a. I don't know. Is it a trend to nowadays take cars and make them much more and patina is, you know, yeah, we say patina a lot, but to make them much more accurate to the sort of spirit of what that car was used for and that car sort of uh, in its natural environment, a sort of sympathetic restoration as opposed to making a showroom car. It seems to be that the the trend, at least, uh you know, as you see with some of these very high-end, certainly Land Rovers, is to, uh, you know, sort of maintain a bit of the history in the car in that the bumps and the scratches and the missing pieces and the interesting, you know, you put on your uh, Instagram all the time, the interesting artwork and things that are uncovered underneath various paint jobs and things. Do you think that people are trending in that direction to be more uh, in the mind of a sympathetic restoration that kind of keeps some of the character of the car? Absolutely. You know, I think it's it's definitely more interesting to keep that, you know, looking the way it looked when Bob was using it. You know, uh, you can make it uh, run nicely. You can mechanically uh, restore this car. Um, but you lose something when you're replacing a lot of the car that that this person used and enjoyed. And and uh, it doesn't look the same as it did then. You know, it's just a, there's a disconnect between the historical photos and how you see it now. And, yeah. uh, you know, w- this this also happened with Winston Churchill's Land Rover, which, you know, that'll probably be a future famous Land Rover owner of the week, but uh, it was purchased at an auction 
and then it had a beautiful patina and original paint and then uh they they repainted it uh, you mm. know and not even a not even original color just like they totally repainted this car famously sold there it is again uh <laughs> famously sold at an auction for i think 260,000 pounds so quite a bit yeah. quite a bit of money yeah. and then uh it went to a museum in in Switzerland and was repainted and this is this for me is kind of a similar thing you know you look at the photos pre restoration it looks like original paint it looks like it looked when bob had the car uh, but maybe in a little bit of neglect. And uh, I think that uh, you could probably just, you know, conserve this vehicle much like you would a, a painting or a sculpture. You know, you don't have to change yeah. the painting or change the sculpture to conserve it or, or uh, you know, restore it to its historical condition, you know. <clears throat> it, like cleaning the painting is different than repainting the painting. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's that's exactly it. You know, and and I obviously, you and I are very much of the same mind on that. Um, my Camel Trophy truck is is a sort of time capsule, right? Every one of those little bumps, and to be fair, even some of the Malaysian mud that is still under some of the floor mats and things like that. That's a super important part, you know, not just of the patina of the vehicle, but of the you know provenance of the vehicle as well, right? I mean, it is a it it, it is a a piece of history. Not every Land Rover is, and there's certainly nothing wrong. And it is very cool to get some. Something like a reborn two-door Range Rover that was set to some amount of neglect somewhere that you know wasn't really a vehicle of any note, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, uh, again, my Series One is in is in you know uh, really nice, very uh, you know very good condition, and uh, will very soon be in in close to factory condition. Um, but that car is not a significant car in that any more than it was just it's never left California, but you know it's been fixed and restored and things. Uh, you know, at various levels over the years. So it, to me, feels completely appropriate to have it look factory new because it's neat to travel back in time to, you know, a, a car from the 19, you know, from 1950 and see what it was like when it was brand new and ran like it was brand new. But something that has a, a real history to it, um, yeah, it feels like a real shame when people wipe that away just to make yet another factory fresh looking car. And like I said, I have factory fresh looking cars. I really like them. Um, but, you know, the funny thing is the car that I drive every day, my Series 3, um, is nothing of note, but also nothing that I would make factory fresh because I like all the little weird little bumps in it and the, you know, the the little things that previous owners have put on it. And I've actually finally, as I sent you a picture the other day, collected the period correct CB radio <laughs> for it. And I love man, it. the cover art from a period from 1970 CB radio at the height of CB radio coolness. The manual for that thing is amazing. I managed to find one that had never been opened in its original box for like $50 on eBay, um, which I'm sure it's double what it was new. I'm sure it was three times what it was new, but it's just funny to open something that someone has kept in a box since, uh, you know, 1973 and to read that literature and stuff for the first time. But anyways, I think like it being of the moment is really cool. And there's really something to that to feel like, wow, this is a car that like has endured and survived and you, you drive it every day and people come up to you in a parking lot and are amazed by this thing, I think in a different way than if it was something that looked like it was brand new off the factory floor. People treat those cars differently. You treat those cars differently. Um, and, you know, 
again, there's nothing wrong with it, but something that has a real history to it that has some some life in it. And to be fair, in the case of that car, had some DNA from that individual, you know, sort of in and amongst those panels. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's too bad when that happens. You yeah, know, poss- possibly happens. literally. Uh, but Possibly <laughs> literally, yeah. <laughs> but, but you're right. Every, sto- every car is different and every car has its own story to tell. And sometimes a car's story is that it is an excellent example of its type or of the mark. And for those cars, you know, uh, having a vehicle that's in original as new condition is is nice. But then other cars, you know, their story happens later in their lifetime. And uh, perhaps they were used for something interesting. You know, uh, they took an interesting trip or someone interesting owned them. And uh, preserving that, I think, is every bit as important. Yeah, well, and and like, again, back to my Series 1 is that, you know, uh, it was a Vintner's car up in Northern California, and there are some pictures of the completely disintegrated cedar floor that was in the back because they had oil, you know, they had uh, wine casks and stuff in there. And so apparently often they replace the floors. They put a wooden floor over the metal floor because metal floor just gets destroyed instantly. Um, Whereas if you have the cedar floor, the wine barrels can go in and out and it doesn't destroy the car. And so that's something like I'm going to reproduce a brand new perfect cedar floor uh, insert for it because again that's part of its story but it doesn't mean that I have to you know maintain a mostly disintegrated cedar floor in in the series one so anyways much uh, much more to talk about on that Bob Marley's car check out the restoration video they actually have a great video on YouTube uh, going through everything that they've done agree or disagree with it it's well made and uh, and they did uh, they did a good job making the video uh, at least lots of lots of fun photos of Bob with the car, um, you know, when when he owned it, uh, or when he was alive, rather, the family still owns it. And uh, yeah, and we will, of course, come back around and talk about uh, more in the world of the Green Oval uh, next week uh, on the Underpowered Hour. All right, I'm looking forward to it. Take care. The Underpowered Hour is produced by me, Steve Barris, and Ike Goss. Consider supporting the show through our Patreon, and when you do, you'll be given access to exclusive content and Underpowered Hour merch. Want even more Underpowered Hour? Check out our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. 